welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Lizana Damore, and today I have the pleasure to introduce a presentation by Moin Syed. He will talk about cultural psychology perspectives on and approaches to personality and his work in this field. As Moin will introduce himself more elaboratively in his talk, let us listen to his presentation without further ado. So personality is one of the most exciting topics in the field of psychology. And yet, modern personality psychology has constrained its focus and lost some of that excitement. Rather than probing the depths of why people are the way they are and why they differ from others and why they act some ways some of the time and other ways other times, and what exactly is their story, we get lengthy debates about factor rotations, variance partitioning, and whether there are really five or six trait domains. Now, don't get me wrong, handfuls of people do find these kinds of debates exciting, and certainly statistical and methodological issues play a key role in better understanding personality, no question. I also know that some of you are already muttering to yourself, not all personality psychology. Yes, I know that, but still, something has been lost. Why this is the case would take a multi-episode podcast to fully discuss, but since I have only been allocated a single episode, unfairly, I might add, today I will largely discuss a single reason for this boring state of personality research, psychological researchers' obsession with universal generalizability. Now, to be clear, this is psychological researchers' obsession, not just personality researchers' obsession. But this is the personality podcast, so the latter is my focus. By universal generalizability, I refer to the procedure of using narrow samples of research subjects, humans or otherwise, to draw broad inferences about the nature of all of humanity. This is the classic well-known problem in psychology of collecting data from small convenience samples, often of college students, but increasingly of anonymous internet people, and then treating that select sample as though they are interchangeable or replaceable for all humans. Thus, any claims to knowledge are universal claims. This approach is consistent with psychology's physics envy, a wonderful play on Freud's penis envy that refers to psychology's self-consciousness about being a, quote, real science and therefore engaging in a variety of behaviors, including universal generalization, that they believe will confer the field's scientific status on par with physics. The hyper-focus on identifying universals has a strong corollary, the relative inattention to cultural context. Today I will share my thoughts on the matter, discussing some different ways that culture matters for personality, because there's not just one way to think about this issue. And the central distinctions are unfortunately not often appreciated by those in the field, which of course is not that surprising given that most don't see attention to cultural context as central to what they do. So welcome everyone, my name is Moin Syed. I am a professor of psychology at the University of Minnesota in the US, and I was asked to generally talk about personality and culture. I will do that, but I first start with a bit of background on my educational path and my perspective on psychology. The full story is a long one, so for today's purposes, I will skip the first 25 years. I will then say a few things about the history and current state of personality psychology, followed, finally, by some comments about how to think about culture and personality. Hopefully you pick up 
one or two useful or interesting insights. So I completed my master's degree in developmental psychology at San Francisco State University. For a variety of reasons, I became interested in the topic of birth order and personality. But as I dug into that literature, I quickly saw that it was a hot, hot mess. With few studies paying close attention to variations such as family size, gender, age spacing, or family status, such as whether they were all biological siblings, their step-siblings, adopted siblings, and so forth. My conclusion was that all of this variation across studies meant that no real conclusions could be drawn. I decided to complete a thesis that focused on the impact of these methodological variations on our ability to draw conclusions about the association. That thesis, Birth Order and Personality, a Methodological Study, would be considered a meta-scientific study in today's nomenclature, although not a very good one. And you can see Julia Rohrer's work for some quality work on this subject. Nevertheless, my first empirical work represented a blend of personality and developmental psychology. I then went on to complete my PhD in developmental psychology at UC Santa Cruz. The developmental program at Santa Cruz is funky in a couple of ways. First, it is one of the few programs in the country that has a stated emphasis on the cultural nature of development. And indeed, that is why I wanted to go there. But it also may be the only department in the country in which developmental and personality are part of the same graduate training program. As many know, personality is often conjoined with social in the U.S. graduate training programs. Taking these together, my socialization as a graduate student was to see clear connections among development, personality, and cultural psychology. I then joined the faculty of the psychology department at the University of Minnesota. The position was an open area cultural psychologist. They ended up hiring me, a developmentalist, but developmental at Minnesota is a separate department in a different college. We all agreed that my work at the time was most similar to the counseling psychology program, so that was my primary affiliation for graduate training. However, I was also given a secondary appointment to the Personality Individual Differences in Behavior Genetics, or PIB, program. Over time, my work in identity became less associated with counseling psychology and more with personality, so I made a switch to be part of the personality program only. This program is unique too in that it is a standalone personality training program and not affiliated at all with the social psychology program. Again, this is quite unique in the US context. My path has been a bit winding, but I suppose you could say that personality has been the most stable part. Surprise! And importantly, throughout my career, I have never seen personality and social within the same lens as most of my colleagues do because I've never been involved in an academic environment in which they were tied together. This has undoubtedly colored many of my views. I like personality psychology because its remit is large, covering nearly all aspects of psychology. And I've always been interested in cutting across sub-disciplines in the field rather than hunkering down in just one. Bill Ravel famously declared that personality research is the last refuge of the generalist. And I guess I mostly agree with that. Then again, if personality research is the last refuge of the generalist, how has cultural psychology not been part of the field? At this point, I should pause to alert you that you may at times bristle at some of my bold claims, sweeping generalizations, and flippant tone. 
I know because serious academics like to caution me about this manner of speaking. Academic psychologists can be quite boring and cautious, you see, as well as insecure and protective of their turf. Part of that is their latent physics envy, which leads them to believe that every claim requires a citation, no matter the quality of evidence that lies behind that citation, and to highlight exceptions to statements with a version of the that's not true for everyone statement made by the undergraduate psychology students they once were. I prefer to speak directly and ostentatiously to communicate my points, and I do not claim that my statements are literally true in all cases, but rather the spirit of the claim is accurate enough so as to get the wheels turning. With that now behind us, let's keep turning the wheels. As I stated at the outset, personality psychology is an exciting field that in many ways has been made boring. Take twins. Twins are fascinating. I have first-hand knowledge as a parent of identical twin daughters, so of course I am to be trusted on this subject. Psychology has long focused on twins to better understand personality. Well, sort of. The field does not actually study twins. That is, they don't study anything about the phenomenological nature of twins, their relationship to each other, with their friends, parents, society, all of the things that everyday people find so fascinating about twins. No, twins are just a model, a convenient model for partitioning variants to better understand the role of genes and environment for psychological phenomena. In this way, they are conceptualized no differently from animal models, using rats, mice, pigeons, etc. to conduct studies that otherwise <clears throat> cannot be done with humans. The fascination of twins is nowhere to be found in the psychological study of twins. But how did this happen? How did personality psychologists make the most interesting topic in psychology so boring? I think there are a couple of historical factors. First is the separation between personality psychology and abnormal psychology, or whatever name on the euphemism treadmill one currently prefers. These two were closely aligned in the early days of psychology. Indeed, they were essentially the same things, but drifted apart such that some areas of clinical psychology now have very little dialogue with personality psychology. This is changing in recent years with initiatives such as High Top seeking to bring greater alignment between normative and maladaptive aspects of personality, but the focus there is heavily on traits, or at least trait-like thinking. The more consequential historical occurrence for the present state of personality psychology is its regrettable alignment with social psychology. Personality and social psychology are quite different in their fundamentals. Personality is primarily focused on enduring regularities of personhood, whereas social psychology is primarily focused on situational behavior. Long ago, I was talking to a friend in philosophy, and as part of a larger story made a passing reference to the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. He stopped me then and there, asking why those two fields are mashed together when they are so fundamentally different. Of course, I had no answer to this at the time, because it really makes no sense. There is a peculiar history there, which is really besides the point for now, but I encourage you to read the great 2005 article by Brewster Smith in Personality and Social Psychology Review on the subject. Rather, I want to say something about the consequences of this train wreck mashup for contemporary personality psychology. As those familiar with the field know all too well, the very existence of personality psychology was questioned in Walter Michel's 1968 book, Personality and Assessment. 
Although the person by situation debate is largely over and it is safe to say that personality won that round, the lasting damage was done. Personality psychology was forced to prove itself, prove that it not only deserved to exist, but needed to exist if we are to properly understand human behavior and mental processes. It most directly had to prove its existence to its dominant frenemy social psychology, which by that time had fully embraced its physics envy and thus heavily emphasized experimentation, quantification, and universal generalizability. Now there's a lot to say about all that, and I have written about it in a few short papers that you can look up and read if you're interested, but, I will, but, but what I will talk about in my remaining time is that final concern of universal generalizability. Well, that is sort of true. I will actually will talk about the flip side of universal generalizability, that is an explicit rejection of this perspective as a default view. I will talk here about what it means to take culture seriously in the study of personality. Starting with an obvious but underappreciated point, there's not one way to think about how to understand personality and culture. Indeed, there are many different types of what people might call cultural psychology, each with their own views on personality. But for now, I will just describe three, drawing a bit from Rick Schwader's ideas and infusing some of my own. Cross-cultural psychology, arguably the most commonly used approach in personality trait research, is primarily drawn from a universalist perspective. People are always surprised when I say this. How is an explicit focus on cultural comparisons rooted in a universalist perspective? So the goals of cross-cultural psychology are often to document similarities and differences in psychological phenomena through a comparison of cultural, usually national, groups. But the ultimate goal is nearly always to determine invariance, that is, to document similarities. This focus is illustrated in the endorsement of the onion as a metaphor. Uh, taking from um, Siegel and colleagues' 1998 paper, a classic one on cross-cultural psychology, they write that cross-cultural psychologists, quote, examine cultural variables very carefully, a process they call peeling the onion, in order to reveal the, quote, psychic unity of mankind, unquote, at the core of their culture. Of course, the outer layers of the onion are important cultural phenomena in their own right, unquote. In other words, we are interested in identifying universals, but oh yeah, not, also not everything is universal. But whether or not something is universal is the core focus of the investigation. In contrast, cultural psychology focuses on the local meaning of psychological phenomena and how variations in mentalities around the world are associated with variations in psychological experience. Cultural psychology does not reject the possibility of universals, but tends to emphasize that whereas psychological processes are likely universal, their contents, that is their manifestations, are not, and that the contents can impact those processes. For example, the process of developing a sense of identity is very likely a universal one. There is no reason to suspect that there is any culture in the world in which people do not do this. That we can call a universal. But how that identity is conceptualized, how it came to be, what it looks like, what we call the content of identity, is likely to vary quite markedly. And the kinds of questions that cultural psychologists, and these are the kinds of questions that cultural psychologists tend to be interested in. 
Finally, there's a third perspective, ethnic minority psychology, which is focused on the meaning and experience of being an ethnic racial minority within a specific national context. Accordingly, ethnic minority psychology tends to have a stronger focus on structural contexts, seeking to understand how power, oppression, and privilege contour psychological phenomena. This component is generally lacking in cross-cultural psychology and most forms of cultural psychology. Whereas cross-cultural and cultural psychology have been conducted by researchers around the world, ethnic minority psychology has focused heavily on the US context, but has also been adopted in Canada, the UK, and increasingly in Germany, the Netherlands, and other countries. So these are the three psychologies as I see them, cross-cultural, cultural, and ethnic minority. Three quite different ways of thinking about diversity, generalizability, and the substantive topics with which they engage. Unfortunately, these distinctions are not often recognized or appreciated, so all of these different approaches get lumped together into a single category that addresses culture, context, diversity, and or generalizability. It has taken me a little while to get here, but I suppose this is one of the main points of this episode, that these three approaches are quite different and correspond to different ways of thinking about personality. Huh? How so? Let's take a look. We'll start with cross-cultural psychology, where the lion's share of research on personality and culture can be found. Much of this work is concerned with questions of universality of personality trait structures, be it the Big Five, Hexaco, or some other, quote, big few taxonomy. Here, you will find many debates about whether or not such structures show evidence for universality and how we can go about arriving at our conclusions. Some rely on a top-down edict approach, where in a trait structure identified in one cultural context, nearly always North American or Western European, is evident in another context. Others take a more bottom-up emic approach in which the trait structure is derived within a given cultural context and then compared to findings in other countries. Layered on top of those distinctions, some take a lexical approach which examines the covariation among trait words in a language, whereas others examine covariation among items or scales indexing psychological constructs. Pretty much all of this work relies on factor analysis. There's a nice recent review paper by Thalmer and colleagues um, included in the show notes that summarizes all of this, but regardless of the details, and there are many, the big picture is that the overarching goal in this line of work is to identify what is universal about traits and their interrelations across all contexts, and what is unique to particular contexts. In this way, it should be immediately obvious that this work is an extension of, or even indiscernible from, mainstream universalist psychology. The only real difference is that they are using broader samples than other work that does not include the cross-cultural label. Another tell that this is the case can be seen in my earlier reference to the edict approach, that it is nearly always findings generated in North American or Western Europe cultures <laughs> that are then examined for generalizability elsewhere. Thus, the current dominant mainstream view is prioritized. In a recent thoughtful paper, Atatula and colleagues questioned this practice and discussed a new initiative to test the generalizability of research that originated in Africa, so generalizing the other way. 
It is extremely rare to apply cross-cultural psychology in this direction, which again tells you something about the approach. As I record this episode, I am in Gothenburg, Sweden, which is something of my second home. It is trivially true to say that Sweden is not quite the same as it is in Minnesota, where I live regularly, just like Minnesota is not quite the same as California, where I spent the first three decades of my life. These three places are different, and the people who live in those places act different. One might say that their personalities are different. There are many possible differences that I could discuss, but the most salient one is their expressiveness. When I moved to the Twin Cities, Minnesota, from Santa Cruz, California, the differences in expressiveness were readily apparent. As we often like to say in Minnesota, there is always much left unsaid in social interactions. It is not uncommon to speak to somebody and be met with a blank stare, or to be received with dampened enthusiasm. Minnesotans tend to keep things close to the chest. A local aphorism is that Minnesotans will give you directions to anywhere except for their own home. Santa Cruz is quite different. There, you know way too much about what people think. There is a rather severe lack of boundaries, and I often characterize the community as one big ongoing conversation. Sweden looks a lot more like Minnesota than it does California, which is not surprising given that there was large-scale migration from Sweden and Norway to Minnesota, but it is also not quite the same. For one thing, in Sweden there are clearly defined cultural values and norms that are related to how people behave and see themselves. Logum is the value of moderation, that things should not be too little and not too much, but just the right amount. The Jontelagen dictates that one should not stand out too much from others, that uniqueness and braggadocio are frowned upon. These two work together to create a context in which Swedish people live, feel, think, and behave. So what I am talking about here is not whether a certain trait, such as expressiveness, exists or not in a given cultural context. Of course it does. I am convinced by my Minnesota colleague Colin DeYoung that universality is endemic to traits. I am also not talking about how trait expressiveness is correlated with other traits or how it fits into a taxonomic structure. What I'm talking about here is the phenomenon of the trait, the range that it shows, the context that modulate it, and how that trait is linked to cultural norms and values. This way of thinking is generally what is captured by cultural psychology, which heavily emphasizes the local meaning of psychological phenomena. It can be comparative or culture-specific. Indeed, much of mainstream psychology is cultural psychology, focused on the local meaning of the psychological phenomenon within the U.S. and Western Europe. Scientism and being in global positions of power means that such work is rarely framed in this way, and many such researchers would object to this characterization. Universal generalizability is a core component of psychology's physics envy, and most psychologists are averse to thinking about the fact that their research is cultural. But it is. Whether they recognize it or not, it is. Now, I highlighted norms and values, and once you start asking questions about these kinds of things, you start to open the, the door to an entirely different perspective. Norms and values are not neutral. They are socially constructed by those who hold societal power. 
So once we start thinking about norms and values, we have to ask whose norms and values, whose lives benefit from those norms and values, and whose lives are constrained by them. These kinds of questions lie at the heart of the ethnic minority perspective and are what set it apart from cultural psychology in general. So now when I say that there are variations in expressiveness across California, Minnesota, and Sweden, and that these patterns are rooted in norms and values, I have to ask, for whom is that the case? Based on whose experience did I derive such knowledge? And if it's based on the dominant white majority, then what are the implications of these norms and values for racial ethnic minorities? You can see now that we have come quite far from the universalist goals of cross-cultural psychology. It seems like I should start wrapping up, otherwise this can go on forever. Such a focus on meanings, context, and power dynamics starts to get us away from the heavy focus on traits within personality psychology. Traits are great and all, but they do not constitute the totality of personality. You would hardly know that, that, that looking at the literature, though, because not only is most high-profile personality work done on traits. Such researchers write as though personality equals traits, as though they are the same thing. I have been begging and pleading with researchers to stop doing this, to just add the simple appendage of traits when studying and discussing personality traits. A paper actually just came out claiming to show that siblings had no influence on personality, but they only studied traits. Who knows about all the other stuff of personality? But what is this other stuff? Most centrally, characteristic adaptations, which are the goals, interpretations, and strategies that people use in their cultural, contextual lives. It is the stories that people tell about their lives, about themselves, that they both hold inside and share with others. This is personality as it is lived, not as it is represented in factor analysis. Okay, yes, I am being a bit flippant. I warned you. I very much like and appreciate research on traits, and who doesn't love a Promax rotation? But there is more, right? There is more than knowing if that rotation holds across U.S. and Estonian samples. This is what I mean when I say that personality psychology has been boring. Universalist trait focused largely edict when doing cross-cultural work. This is all well and good, but it's not enough. Integrating more cultural and ethnic minority perspectives, going deeper with characteristic adaptation life stories, that is what is needed to inject some excitement into the field and to really learn about what it means to be like all other people, like some other people, and like no other people. Thanks for listening and be well.